is Food on Point, a weekly podcast coming to you from Berlin that hits on the less circulated topics around food and the gastronomy industry. We sit down with leading thinkers and doers in the far reaches of politics, agriculture, tech, academia, hospitality, and even activism to ask the hard questions when it comes to the food that we grow, serve, and eat. this month is called The New Age of Agriculture, where we look at ways people are combating climate change, disrupting the destructive effects of conventional farming, or innovating new methods for a brighter food future for their community. This week, we're getting into the coffee realm with entrepreneur and coffee business consultant Corey Andreen. The world of coffee agriculture is a big one, and it's rarely talked about and quite underrepresented. For instance, Did you know that coffee will most likely be a luxury item in the future, costing so high that it won't be an everyday staple like it is now? If we don't start understanding the effects of climate change on coffee, plus our spending habits when it comes to this precious commodity, it won't be around as we know it today. This is exactly what Corey and I go over in our interview. Corey and I chat about everything from how coffee exists in the marketplace, what the threats are to the agricultural side of the coffee growing and selling business, plus how we can make better choices as consumers when it comes to the seriously delicious beverage we all love and depend on so much. So hi, Corey. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about coffee. For me, I mean, I'm a huge coffee lover, which is more and more, I think, a thing these days now that we can get such great coffee around the world. Um, But I am constantly hearing murmurings of basically coffee as we know it being severely threatened for the future. And I know that you're participating in a lot of these conversations of... um, how we can protect, I guess, the coffee industry in a lot of ways? First of all, there aren't nearly enough of these conversations happening. Uh, but when when at all possible, I think it's, it's uh, the most important thing we can be discussing right now as an industry. Uh, definitely much more important than, uh, like, hey, can we put a latte in an avocado peel? Or should we allow prams in our shops or anything like that? Uh, because it is... Uh, it's true. Coffee is facing a number of existential threats at the moment, the likes of which uh, it never has before. Okay. So, I mean, for instance, like what, just to dive in, I mean, definitely things that have to do with climate change for for one, right? If we are to... Yeah, absolutely. And and climate change is kind of a double whammy because it itself uh, is an existential threat to coffee directly because uh, it, it, coffee is a very delicate plant. It only likes to grow between the tropics, the Tropic of Capricorn and Cancer, Mm -hmm. so around the equator, uh, but also only at certain altitudes. So it likes to be above, let's say, 1,400 meters above sea level uh, because it wants to have the sunshine, the warmth of the equator, but not the blistering heat that you get when you're at sea level. Mm -hmm. Uh, So high up in the mountains. The sweet spot. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So nice warm days and then pleasantly cool evenings and always kind of in this range of 16 to 24 degrees Celsius at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so anything outside of that range and coffee starts to get quite uncomfortable. And so, of course, with climate change, we have been seeing more and more uh, conditions outside of the norm. 
in growing areas. Not to mention, uh, you know, things like El Nino increasing in intensity or just becoming more unpredictable. So that makes climate change a huge threat um, just to killing the plants. But in, in the meantime, before we even get to the point of coffee starting to die out in in large numbers you see the effects of climate change hurting farmers economically mm-hmm. which farmers are already making you know at best a break even money on their coffee farms mm-hmm. and so you know facing just a, a mild seasonal disaster of a little bit too much rain or not enough rain uh, is enough for them to to give up and turn to something else like uh, you know, drugs or mm-hmm. growing uh, soybeans or whatever. Yeah. And why is coffee unique or why is it different than just like us depending on our like local farms for just, you know, vegetables? I mean, why in the, you know, our what is it, four or five billions of people? Why is it different? Yeah, well, in my opinion, I think it's uh, unfortunately still a bit of a a colonial legacy as well. It's a thorny topic in that most people would deny thinking about it that way if you ask them directly, but I think most people indirectly have this idea of coffee coming from, uh, you know, what what might be referred to as third world countries, which most of them aren't, and, uh, and it's just kind of an idea of like, well, I, I'm sure that they're earning enough to live off of, you know, and people... People see they see it as a staple, and uh, staples should be affordable. Uh, unfortunately, as opposed to things like wheat or uh, you know sugar, other things that people see as staples, uh, it's it's not easy to mass produce coffee in a way to to bring the price down and still pay the people producing it. I mean that's tough with with any of these staples, but with coffee especially. And so I think. People expect it to be both cheap because they're consuming it every day and because it comes from these countries where they can't imagine having to pay uh, a high price for them. But the the reality is coffee is extraordinarily cheap. Even in the most expensive coffee shop you can think of, uh, the the price isn't that much, uh, at least the when you take into account how much of it ends up with the farmer, which mm-hmm. is only about 10%. Yeah. And that's because what the chain of supply is so long, basically, right? I mean, what does, I mean, to put it in another way, how many steps does it go through before basically we get it in our cup? Too many. Yeah, a lot. The the easy (laughs) answer is too many. It's, uh, and it really varies. It varies quite a bit. Um, But uh, unfortunately, coffee is also treated as a commodity, which means... uh, It's priced as a commodity too, though, right? In the marketplace. Just right. like wheat so, and so, yeah. yeah, coffee has a coffee has a standard price. It's called the C market price, mm-hmm. and uh, that number essentially hasn't changed in something like twenty years. Mm. It's remained steady. You know, everything else, the price of everything else in the world has gone up, but the reality is the the market price for coffee, what car, what farmers are getting paid on average, is it's remained the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, so what determines the C market though is is yeah how it's being traded by large financial organizations. Mm-hmm. So you you'll often have a, a coffee that's maybe uh, let's say grown by a cooperative member. So that's the most common route for coffee to take in uh, East Africa and parts of Central America. Um, but that cooperative farmer will harvest the cherries. 
Uh, most of the time, it's really not very much. It's what will amount to being a few kilos of roasted coffee at your local shop. Um, but they deliver them as fresh cherries to wherever their cooperative is collecting stuff. Usually they'll have their own central milling operation somewhere, which is where they remove fruit from the cherries to get down to the, the seeds inside. Uh, and so the the farmer will go, and the, the weight of the cherries will be noted. And so essentially it's he's handing over the cherries to the cooperative and will get paid at a later point for, for the delivery. So that's essentially one transaction already happening. And then the cooperative pools all of this coffee because the individual m- members don't produce nearly enough uh, to do anything with. So mm-hmm. they pool it all together. Uh, and then uh, oftentimes it'll go through some kind of exchange. So uh, in Kenya, it's through an auction. Uh, in Ethiopia, you had a commodities exchange that was uh, like the National Commodity Exchange that it would always go through. And, uh, and so then that will be what determines the price that the cooperative gets per, per pound per kilo of coffee. And then that will determine what the payout is to the farmer. So let's say, for instance, in Kenya, uh, it's sold at auction. So it could be purchased by someone like uh, the Neumann Gruppe, which is a large uh, large German coffee buyer uh, with uh, unpleasant history, <laughs> if you care to look into it. Uh, but they might buy it uh, and then uh, immediately flip it by selling it to another commodity trader. And then that commodity trader might still offer it to a number of exporters around Kenya, and someone would then also buy it so that they could either export it themselves to, to say, Europe or the U.S., or sell it to an importer based in one of those places. And then once it's there, uh, then the importer will start shopping it around to coffee roasters to see who wants to buy it. So, uh, you know, that's what already potentially six different middlemen uh, before it's even made it to the coffee roaster who's also going to want to make a profit on it yeah. before selling it to the coffee shop who also want to make a profit to, on it or selling it to the grocery store, yeah. things like that. And that's that's even a, that's, I mean, that's even one of the nicer examples. You know, you had in, in Central America, it's common for guys called uh, coyotes who would go around to the coffee farmers and uh, and just offer to buy the cherries off of them and essentially tell them that the, the price was really bad currently and try to just bargain them down to the lowest price possible. Then they would take it and go bring it to, uh, you know, a, then a larger milling operation, sell it to them at a profit, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but then, you know, it's, you know, you even have these these weird little middlemen interactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, it's uh, it, the money goes lots of places in, in the coffee world, but uh, to the farmers, uh, it, well, Goes a lot of places in the coffee world, but not necessarily to the farm. And that's the point is basically at the end of all of these hands passing down, you know, this commodity at the end, the farmer's getting probably so very little of what they should be getting to sustain a life. Correct. That one of the biggest issues. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then another one that you brought up also was that, um, I mean, basically a question is like, how can we incentivize farmers to continue their farming or passing it down through generations. I mean, a big issue you were talking about was sort of this threat of like the younger generations just not taking up the legacy of coffee farming or 
No, it's mm-hmm. not. It's, it's something that, uh, I mean, especially it's been a lot of my colleagues have been picking up on it in, in Colombia, where like the median age of a coffee farmer is now well into the 60s because, you know, they all they all have kids and the kids have access to the Internet. They all have smartphones and they see what's going on in the rest of the world and they see, you know, the, the lives that they're their family and their their parents have been living and they say uh fuck that i'd rather be a graphic designer i'd rather do anything but this because you know it's a it's a thankless job that i will that i will never get paid for and rightfully so what can help incentivize more or younger generations to keep in the f- you know, in this industry. I mean, a lot of it, I mean, we, so this kind of dives into direct trade, right? I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit about that, but. I mean, sure. Direct, direct trade is, is, uh, has reached the point where, uh, it's the, the good intentions it started out with, of course, have been taken over by, uh, by capitalism. Uh, and so what you have is unfortunately a large number of companies, uh, around the world uh, claiming to sell direct trade coffee without having any real uh, real meaning behind it. You know, what is direct trade anyways uh, in the coffee industry, no matter what? That's my question. What is what direct is trade? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, some places it's simple. Like in Brazil, you can go, you find someone you want to work with. Uh, you say, I want to buy your coffee. They say, great, I want to sell you my coffee. You can sign a contract then and there. You pay the money and you take the coffee with you. And that's the that's as direct as you can get, uh, but in uh, a lot of other countries, especially in Africa, you you can't legally do that. And it's, a lot of ways, it's a good thing because historically it was meant to protect farmers from exploitation from uh, from Europeans. I don't know why they would ever think that Europeans would ever try to exploit anyone yeah. in Africa. Why? But, uh, yeah, never ever happens. Um, but uh, you know, so they have these these measures in place, which uh, which mean. You, you can still go to a farmer oftentimes or a cooperative and, and say, I want to buy your coffee, make the contract, but then you still have to work with someone to get it out of the country for you. So essentially you'll have to, you can sign a contract with the farmer, but then you still have to pay someone else to buy the coffee from the farmer to take it out of the it, country. Export it, basically. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, direct trade is a, uh, again, started off, with the best of intentions for a lot of farmers as well. It's been, it's been great. It's worked really, really well. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, unfortunately we're now at a point where uh, thanks to the fact that it's so hard to have a a real true and pure definition of, of direct trade. And there's no one to police that, that a lot of companies are just throwing it around uh, even though they're buying coffee from coffee importers, just like any other business has been for years and so the the industry is kind of at a point where you know people get the pioneers of of direct trade and using that that phrasing are are looking for new new ways to affect real change because also that's that's what they they saw is that direct direct trade worked for a, a a certain number of farmers but it didn't seem to do much in the broader industry and now that the the term has been co-opted uh it's kind of lost its power. Yeah. And so now people are looking to to real transparency. And so kind of kind of saying like saying your coffee is direct trade isn't good enough. Tell us tell us what you paid for it. Tell us how much the farmer is getting. Um, and so more and more companies are, are doing this. Uh, you have uh, 
sort of counterculture in the U.S. is one of the one of the pioneers. They've been doing it uh, for for a while now, and they bring out a, a a report every year that you can just go to their website and download and see exactly what they've paid for all their coffees. Uh, and uh, a few other European roasters have also uh, been doing that. Co- uh, the Coffee Collective in, in Copenhagen just came out with their sustainability report for the past year. Uh, Tim Windlebow has also done it for several years. And uh, the, you know these kinds of things are really important because those are these are all companies that are seen as uh, being not, not just the, the best, some of the best quality available in their respective countries, but worldwide. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're setting a great example for other countries to... Um, yeah, just be completely honest with what they're paying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's and that's ultimately, if there is going to be some change, it has to happen via the consumers. And consumers need to know what questions to ask and what to look for. And that's that's really missing right now. So through these reports and trying to publish as much information as possible, uh, I think that will hopefully help to uh, kind of encourage people to understand that someone saying direct trade is no guarantee that they're paying a good price for the coffee. Uh, Whereas if they show you how much was paid for the coffee, it's still not a 100% guarantee of what ended up with the farmer, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's a huge step in the right direction. Yeah. But this is also a problem because people are not willing to pay more than like three or four dollars or euros for a cup of coffee. So that's the other problem is like a small business where they might not be able to afford like what the real price or they're being super competitive or haggling down the price, as you say, um, because they know that in their marketplace, people are are not going to pay more than three or four dollars per euro. And this is one (laughs) of the biggest problems. And I guess that leads me because I do want to know basically why is it seen as something so cheap? been lacking kind of that like luxury status that it really is due or needs well i mean yeah it's a great question the the thing is is that i also don't want to see coffee become like a true luxury good you know it's not saffron it's not caviar uh but it it is currently far too cheap for what it is and it's something that people take for granted historically Coffee has has always been a fuel. I mean, that's the 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 history of coffee uh, goes back uh, to a point where supposedly it was the world's first sort of power bar. Mm. That before people were drinking it, they were putting the cherries into kind of like these little compact bars mm-hmm. that they would take on the road to eat. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's. It was initially prized as a fuel before people figured out that you could also roast it and drink it, and it was very delicious. And so it's always lived this kind of parallel life of it is its fuel and it's delicious, and it's fuel and it's delicious. Mm. And, I mean, I think coffee suffered a similar fate to most other consumable goods in the, the early part of the previous century where it just became industrialized, and you had, uh, you know, it was about pumping out quantity over quality. Um, but then that's also why this this current movement of better coffee started the, the same place as the farm to cup or the farm to cup. <laughs> that's 
the farm to table movement. But that also came about in, in the 60s. You know, you had uh, Alfred Pete of Pete's Coffee opened his little coffee shop in Berkeley in the 60s and th- inspired a, a generation of mm. people to do better coffee. And then you really also saw the same thing pick up in, in Australia due to uh, a large number of Italian immigrants. Uh, and then also Scandinavia, just due to a strong filter coffee drinking population who started to uh, become rather wealthy and were able to spend the money on better, on importing better coffee. Mm-hmm. And so, um, kind of those were the three hot spots of coffee quality being uh, more focused again. And then the internet happened, and they all met each other in chat rooms, and the rest is history. Yeah. And again, on the consumer side, I feel like there's a ton, I mean, a lot of the issues you, you've you touched on, like a big issue within the industry is how we see this with food, but like this greenwashing in the coffee world, but the kind of this whole thing around that people throwing out these certifications and this and that and like lying about Don't it. Don't even get me started on certificates. Yeah. Certificates are the worst. Yeah. And also like, by the way, is fair trade even like a thing really anymore? Like it doesn't even do anything? It is. And especially in the German market, Germans... Germans, uh, you know, since we both live in Germany, you will also know Germans love like an official stamp on something, and that's that's also something funny to to experience as a coffee company that's really trying to pay more for coffee. Fair trade price, the baseline is five cents above the C market price. So if you have the C market hovering around. One, it's all always in dollars per pound. So apologies if that's confusing to anyone. It is for, for the rest of us as well. <laughs> it's one dollar thirty five cents per pound, give or take. Mm-hmm. You know, it fluctuates around that, and the fair trade price is just five cent buffer on top of that. So you would end up at a dollar forty, per pound. Um, and that's not much. That's really. Not much money at all, when especially when you consider that uh, a company like Coffee Collective or um, or Counterculture uh, will spend three times that much on a coffee. They just don't have a certification to put put on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can go to their websites and see, or you can go to this Transparent Trade website and uh, and yeah, just see how how it compares. But uh, it's it's a really tough thing to communicate to a market like Germany where you know they see a stamp that says fair and they think well it must be fair and I think part of it is also a a bit of a bit of living in denial like not wanting to admit to yourself that you it's even, not fair yeah. that that you know that you want to feel like no I paid 10 extra cents for this chocolate bar because it had this stamp on it and I did good, and having to contemplate that no, you should probably actually paid twice as much for yeah. that chocolate bar for it to be meaningful, you know. So, but like, what is your gripe with all of these stamps and certifications? I mean, it's just that a a lot of people get away with basically crap, right? I, or I mean, my my main gripe is that I think it allows people in the West to, um, you know, maybe spend a very small amount of money more than they would have, and to feel like that. They're doing their part that, you know, if if the world is going down the toilet and if, uh, you know, people in producing countries uh, can't live off of what they're earning 
it's not because it's not because I didn't buy fair trade. Yeah. I did my part. Like you're welcome. And so I can just shut it out of my mind because what did anyone else do? And so you're saying that they propagate it like almost too much. This sort of in the coffee scene, the coffee culture, there's just so many of these like stamps and certifications that it's almost giving a false idea of good doing. Yeah, 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 yes and no. The problem is the coffee market is also huge and complex. You know, the the part of it that I'm most active in is this real niche part of it. No, not in the U.S. In the U.S., the specialty market is huge now. It's like 50% yeah. of all people in the U.S. drink something that can be considered specialty coffee every single day. Whereas here in, in Germany, it's much smaller. And so most people will buy coffee from the supermarket. And what's wrong with that, by the way? Like that mass production of just like Arabica, Whoa. grocery store, bean? Now, uh, honestly, nothing's wrong with it if you're paying what it should cost. But uh, you don't have that. You go to you know, a place like Aldi and you can buy a kilo of coffee for four euros, five euros. And when you consider that that contains, contains VAT, it contains a German uh, coffee tax, which is two euros, 19 cents per kilo. That's, uh, and uh, that's also one thing that makes coffee more expensive in Germany, but people don't know that actually the, the biggest earner on any kilo of coffee in, in Germany tends to be the government. And, but yeah, so if you go to one of these uh, discount supermarkets, then you buy one of these cheap packages of coffee, you're looking at the farmer getting paid probably less than the price of, or the cost of production. Mm. But then am I doing better as a consumer? Um, and this doesn't even take into account, you know, the money that I earn and yeah, my average wage and what I can afford. Um, am I doing better by supporting like these smaller, not only buyers, businesses and roasteries, than to just go and get like an espresso at um like a corner cafe. Oh god, that's uh <laughs> layered. <laughs> yeah. For the the sake of local roasting companies being local and therefore like like politics, they're the the ones you can influence. Go to them. And I I mean what I would encourage everyone to do is to just try to familiarize yourself with simple things like what a farmer might get paid for for their coffee or you know what the 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 market price is uh or what fair trade standard price is just get an idea of that and then go to your local shop and and push them you know challenge them to share the information with you of how much they paid for the coffee like and it's not about just like paying more in those places because it's not going to trickle down. It's more about dem- kind of demanding more information, correct? Kind of more transparency. And, yeah, don't yeah. don't show me a picture of yourself wearing a hat to keep the sun out of your eyes, picking up some some cherries while smiling over at the local guy on the farm. Tell me how much you paid for the coffee, mm-hmm. you know? Because the first one is really really easy, and everyone is doing it these days. The second one. Uh, not enough people are doing it, you know. It's and that's and that's as a consumer of coffee, that's the best thing you can do, you know, is to is to get these these people who are local but still big enough to make make a bit of a difference, get them to to share their information mm-hmm. and tell you if they're actually 
walking it like they talk it. Yeah, I mean, to go back to more of the agriculture side of it, how can we make growing coffee more sustainable? Or what are the factors that we can do, you know, besides going down the rabbit hole of climate change and all this stuff, but how can we make it more of a sustainable? Uh, I mean, it's really just uh, just pay for it. If you can't, if you don't like what the coffee costs in a shop, buy a bag of beans. You know, you can buy a really, really fancy bag of beans and you're still going to be spending less money than if you buy a tube of Nespresso capsules. Yeah. You know, it's uh, per cup. Buying a bag of coffee beans is incredibly cheap, especially if you think like you buy a, a really high end bag of beans, maybe mm-hmm. not the most fancy, but very high quality. And then you compare it with how much you would have to spend on a bottle of wine that's in the same kind of uh, stratosphere mm-hmm. of quality, considering all wines. It's a bargain. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a bargain of a lifetime. My brain hurts a bit whenever I contemplate this this flip that has occurred in our society where uh, kind of mass consumer goods uh, that are made to be cheap so that workers can be paid not much money, um, that they're a sign of being, I don't know, honest. It's like a, whereas, whereas things that cost more money that are produced by your neighbor, someone you might know, or someone you might know who goes and knows the person who grows the coffee and it's a it's a chain where you can actually follow it on mm-hmm. a personal level rather than going through you know big conglomerates so how can we be better coffee consumers in general um empower yourselves with knowledge always yeah don't believe the hype empower yourself with knowledge and just be prepared to to pay a, a truly fair price want to sponsor or partner with Food on Point? We'd love to collaborate with you. Write us an email at hello at foodonpointpodcast.com. This episode is co-produced by Madeline McLean and Stephanie Grotenhofer and was recorded in Berlin's Noise Fabric, a multi-purpose and co-working space dedicated to the audio and creative industries. For more information, visit them at noisefabric.com and let them know that we sent you. We love hearing from you, and let's keep the conversation going on these vast topics. You can find us on Instagram at Food on Point or on Twitter at Food on Point One.